I'm surprised they let me do this because I'm such a super fan. I feel like I am introducing Billy Graham. Uh, and because this woman, Muriel Cash, she does retreats for women and she does Bible studies for women and she's just uh, incredible. Uh, she taught me my first real Bible study. And when I say real Bible study, I've been to a couple of Bible studies light. And then I took a Bible study, well, I took a Sunday school class for, from Muriel, and she's teaching a Sunday school class here now on Sunday mornings too. But if you want to go gorge Grand Canyon deep in the Bible, mm -hmm. this is the woman. But she has struck that kind of balance that she's so into the Word and so absorbed by the Word, but she also has the joy of Christ that just comes out of her. And I see so many Christian women they're really heavy on one side of that or the other. And she's got that balance. And so people are very drawn to want to know more about this Jesus that she knows. And she's not only that, she's a wonderful mother. Uh, all her children are adults and uh, wonderful in their own churches, in their own ministries. She ties with Joyce Johnson for having the most godly grandchildren <laughs> in the world. I mean, you hear these stories and you go, how could all of them be so wonderful? And they all are. And, uh, you know, not that her life has not had its ups and downs. And those of us who were saddened but privileged to watch Muriel walk some of the, through some of the things she walked through, it just made her testimony and her belief in the Word of God that much more real. She is currently, uh, I know I'm going to get your title wrong because this is, they keep changing Muriel's title because she's at North Cobb Christian School. Do we have anybody here who went to North Cobb Christian? Because usually in any kind of crowd, there's someone that Muriel knew <laughs> that went through North Cobb Christian because she puts a stamp on every young life that she comes into contact with. Everybody remembers her. And she's sort of the go-to person, resource, media, teaching. It really doesn't matter. If, if they're trying to do anything, they go to Muriel to get help with it. So what's your new title? Lower school support. To support. Okay. So anyway, she's, she's just the go-to person. And so it's a great, great privilege that after we pray, Muriel's going to come up here and she's going to... Start the beginning of a stamp, I hope, on your life, because she's around apostles now, and we're so grateful. Let's bow our heads. <coughs> Father, we just come to you now, just as we are, with everything we dragged in here with us. And we just ask you, please, Lord, to clean us up, speak to us, get our attention, look directly into our hearts, speak into our hearts. Use your servant, Muriel. Help us to receive the message that you want to give. Bless her. Bless each woman here. Help us to be a blessing to others when we leave. And we ask all this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After that introduction, I remember one time I went to hear Elizabeth Elliott at um, First Baptist Atlanta. And they gave her this marvelous introduction. And she said she felt a little like a turtle on a fence post, you know that it didn't get there by itself. And that's kind of the way I feel, you know, just the opportunity to be here tonight. There have been so many people along the way, primarily the Lord, you know, that's just brought me to, to have this opportunity to share with you all tonight. And I told Janet as we were praying before, she mentioned about contentment. She said, you really, you know, that the scripture talks about that you, Paul, learned to be content. 
And I said, that's basically what I'm going to share with you all tonight, because I think the, the main thing that I could share with you is just what I've learned, you know, just to pass on information. And Linda and Casey have heard me share this, and I think um, possibly Vicki too, but the kind of the joke in our family is a, a couple of, two or three years ago, a friend and I were at the beach, and she was reading and I was reading. She said, oh, listen to this quote. She said, when an old person dies, it's like a library burns. And I thought, well, that's the truth. We got a lot of information that we need to pass along to the next generation. So my grandchildren refer to me as the old library. In fact, that's the way I, and I tell them, I said, you know, if I repeat myself, just listen, because it's probably some information that that you're going to need. So I feel like, you know, when you've lived, you know, a number of years, you just accumulate not just information, I think, but really and truly things that will help. I doubt that anything I tell you tonight will be revelation, but I think a lot of it will probably be um, confirmation, just things that you know in your heart. And sometimes when somebody just verbalizes it, you know, it just feels good basically to just have yourself sort of validated in things that you've been thinking about. And I, I've never read this book. Have any of you ever read The Winter of Our Discontent? It was the last novel that John Steinbeck wrote. And do you know who the protagonist is? Ethan Allen Hawley. How about that? But anyway, I, that thought kept coming to me about the winter of our discontent. And I thought, you know, we are living just in a day of discontent. I mean, everywhere, that's basically what I see throughout our culture. Everybody is just discontent. They're not happy with the politics. They're not happy with the morals. They're not happy with this. They're not happy with that. And most of that is really justifiable because we're in a a day of chaos unlike any, any of us have ever seen. And to find contentment in the midst of that is um, something that I really believe that we're all longing for. Well, the two scriptures in particular that you'll be familiar with, and I'm going to read those, you know, just to kind of start off. And then I'm going to share something that God really put on my heart yesterday. And I don't, I believe it's probably for all of us, but maybe for some people in particular. But first scripture here is one that you're all familiar with, Philippians 4, and I'm going to read 11 through 13 if you want to write that reference down. Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatsoever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then the other one is 1 Timothy 6, and I'm going to read 6 through 10 just to, to keep it in context. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some covered, coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows, always wanting more, always wanting more. So just in light of that, as I say, I, I feel like this is something that I wanted to start off with. And as I say, I don't necessarily know who it's for, but I hope it'll be beneficial. But I was thinking one of the main reasons I believe that people are in discontent is because of woundedness. 
that we carry around a lot of wounds. And, you know, we always use the term disease, but I just want to hyphenate that just for our purposes right here. A lot of us are in dis-ease. And we're in dis-ease because of of past wounds. And I met with um, a friend yesterday whose um, high school-age daughter is just sort of in a dilemma, going through a rebellious period, having some issues. And, um, you know, as we were, you know, just trying to talk through that, I was just, and I made this comment. I said, you know, I said, the world that she is growing up in is so completely different from the world that we grew up in. And it came to me, and, and part of what, her mother, what, what this mother was sharing with me is that there's incredible woundedness from other believers, from other, you know, and I think that there's probably no deeper wound, you know, than that. And it just immediately came to me, the, the story of the Good Samaritan. And I said, you know, it said that he was stripped, wounded, you know, basically left for dead. And, of course, the religious people, the priest walked by on one side, you know, the Levite walks by on the other side. And then the Good Samaritan, you know, comes. And this is the point that I made with her and that I want to make with us tonight. You know, so many times we read the Scripture and there's some depth to it that we don't really see, but it says that he poured in the oil and the wine. The reason that he poured the oil in first was the oil acted as a softening and anesthetic agent to that wound. And then he poured in the wine, which was the medicinal, you know, the alcohol. He poured in the medicinal aspect after that wound was prepared so that healing could occur. And I feel like so many times that's, you know, I think that's why we're supposed to speak the truth in love. You know, there's something about just the the way that you begin to, to minister to people. So I hope tonight, whatever that woundedness is, that maybe just particularly that the Holy Spirit being the, the oil, the Holy Spirit will begin to soften that wound and maybe even anesthetize it to a degree where some part of the word maybe tonight, you know, would be really like medicine to you, that it would begin to bring some healing. And so I thought about um, in Song of Solomon, it says that he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. And so I really believe that in the course of what I share tonight, that it will be, I always just try to perceive it as like a banquet laid out, you know, that you have opportunity to take whatever it is that you feel like you need. But suddenly there's a hunger for something that you didn't even know that you were hungry for. So I want you just to really see this as an opportunity because he has definitely brought you to the banqueting table. I mean, it's a lovely place. And Amber, you're obviously in your niche here. It's so absolute. It's so absolutely great. But I thought about just even starting out somewhat like just with a definition of contentment. And somebody has referred to it as not having more, but wanting less. Not having more, but wanting less. And as I said, we live in a very chaotic world. And I think these are some distinctions that I want to make because these, these are why we so, many, so few people are contented. It's because we run 24-7. And we're not designed to run 24-7. And I was thinking the other day, I thought, you know, part of what's wrong is people have so many choices. Like as many channels as you're willing to pay for, you can pump into your house. Well, when I was a child, we had three channels, 2, 5, and 11, if you lived in the Atlanta area. And 
came on at seven o'clock in the morning with the national anthem and went off at night with the national anthem about you know ten or eleven o'clock. And then if you wanted to, you could sit and watch the test pattern. Does anybody even know what a test pattern is? <laughs> I, I shared with our middle schoolers at our school at chapel a few years ago, and I said, does anybody know what a test pattern is? And it was like a deer in headlights, you know. <laughs> and it may be like that for some of you, but as much as I love TV, I hate to admit it, but actually sometimes I just sat and looked at the test pattern. <laughs> I just did. But as I say, we're just not designed to live 24-7. And so we've been pushed in and poured in to that mold, and also the fact that we have so many choices. I mean, there were like three or four choices of shampoo when I was a child. You know, And I remember you know, standing in the, in the grocery store and really just looking at how many shampoos and how many conditioners. And, you know, there's just incredible choices that, that are available to us. And I think it just can absolutely overwhelm us. And so I kind of want to draw back from that just a little bit because we are told to be in the world, y'all finish it, but not of the world. And so we've been poured into the mold of, and obviously the scripture that I'm going to share with you right here is one that you're, that you're all familiar with. It's Romans 12. Let me get to it here, where he says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we might know what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God for each one of us. Well, the word there for conformed literally means don't be pressed into the mold of this world. And I think that's part of what keeps us from contentment is because we're trying to be, you know, we're trying to be like everybody else. And we recognize that that's definitely not what any of us are wanting. And Jesus said, he said, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me because I am meek and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls. And your soul is your mind and your will and your emotions. And I think that's why so many people are, are not contented is because there's a lot of dis-ease, there's a lot of distress going on within your soul. So let me read this um, from, Charles, excuse me, from Charles Spurgeon. He said, You say, if I had a little more, I should be very satisfied. You make a mistake. If you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. And that's very, very true. But I wanted to speak specifically about some things that I honestly believe are the greatest robbers of contentment. And the first one is perfectionism. We live in a world that if you don't do it perfect, you know, there's just there's no there's no margin for failure. And so there's this fear all the time, you know, and so there's this real, there's this drive for perfectionism. And we're also performance driven, which is so contrary to the word. So perfection is probably the first thing. And the second thing that I would say is control. We want to be in control. We all want to be in control. And when things are out of control, that's probably one of the major agents of discontent. It's when things are out of control because just by, by nature, we want to, we absolutely want to be able to, to be in control. The other one, and I think this is a major one for all of us, is comparison. Is comparison. Now, the danger in comparison is you're walking 
on the narrow way, God has a specific plan for you, but you get your eyes on somebody else. And here's like, there's a ditch on one side and a ditch on the other. The ditch on one side is I'll never be where they are. And you just fall into the ditch of discouragement. Or the other ditch is I'll never be where they are. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I mean I'm so far above where they are. You know, and so there's that ditch of disdain, you know, where you're looking down on somebody. And so there's just a real tendency, I think, that we all have to make comparisons. And it's just time to say, you know, we're going to stop that. And I think the main, one of the main things that I want to encourage you to do in regard to contentment is to focus on Jesus. Literally, focus on Jesus. And I remember back when... Um, Judge Scalia died, and it just seems like a lot of things were were happening, you know, that could have had, a, you know, a major, you know, a major effect, you know, on our laws and on our Supreme Court, you know, and that sort of thing. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, one of the things that I felt like the Lord was showing me is, is that everything that we've trusted in, He was going to make sure that all the props were knocked out that I had to absolutely put my confidence and my trust and my assurance not in the White House, not in the Supreme Court, but in the throne room of God. And Casey and my, a former, our former pastor, whom we, we dearly love, he, he taught a sermon. Um, and to me, this says a lot about how you can get, bring contentment into your life. He taught a sermon. It was called Gazing and Glancing. And he said, when you gaze at Jesus, there's peace and contentment. And what we're supposed to do is gaze at Jesus and glance at the problem. But what we have a tendency to do is we gaze at the problem and glance at the Lord. And so there's just, it's just a matter really, so much of it is, is changing our focus. Another thing along the same lines of um, roots of what rob us of contentment is I think neglect of our own spiritual life neglect of our own spiritual life. And what I mean by that, in, um, in Song of Solomon, in the first chapter, in that sixth verse, the Shulamite maiden says, my, mother's, um, brothers were, my, my brother's sons were angry with me. Talking about others, and for us, it would be other believers. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, plural, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And so I really and truly think that part of contentment is sort of kind of hoeing your own row, you know, just staying within the confines of what God has for you. And so much discontent comes when we're trying to please other people. One of the Proverbs says that the fear of man brings a snare. And so as long as you're trying to please other people or live up to other people's expectations, I think it brings great discontentment. And part of contentment is to settling in in who you are in the Lord. We've all been set apart. We all have a particular calling. And when you find that place, there's just such a sense of contentment in being where God wants you, wants you to be. Part of our lack of contentment is our culture that says more is better and bigger is better. And, you know, it's very interesting to me now, too, about how Many of the churches that are packing, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand people, you know, in on a Sunday, so much of it really is geared toward pleasing people. And we're very um, moved by numbers, 
I hope after I say this, you won't be moved by numbers. But if numbers impress you, and you think that that is some indication of um, success, how many billion Muslims are there in the world? So you see, numbers don't necessarily, you know, coincide with what, what God perceives as success. So I think that's an incredibly important thing that we need to need to share. I did, this was several years ago, and I did a retreat up in Chattanooga. I just did one of the workshops, and I don't remember. There was a lady that was the featured speaker. And I remember there was a young lady, and I know probably many of you are unmarried. I know some of you might be, but anyway, I remember she was the worship leader, and she was talking about how so many of her friends had become discontent in their singleness, you know, and so they had really moved out into relationships and gotten in marriages that were not what they had hoped that they would be. And she said, this is what she had learned. She said, it's better to want what you don't have than to have what you don't want. <laughs> and I think that's probably, you know, we just have such a tendency, you know, to think if I just had this, if I just had this. And oftentimes when you get what you think you wanted, you, know, you find that that was definitely not what, what you wanted at all. In the early days of... Um, as I just was beginning my teaching and everything, and I, Susan and I were talking about this, she said, you know, when did you first start teaching? And I said, well, actually, it was about 40 years ago. And I'd been saved about probably three or four years, and I had an opportunity to teach a, um, a seventh-grade class at my, at my church. And so I, that was basically, you know, where I s- started teaching. And then just as things progressed, you know, we were very involved in, in high school ministry. And then later on, just a lot of the people that I, you know, was involved with, when they were in high school, I, you know, had opportunity to mentor and disciple even, you know, as they um, began to grow older. But about, this was, in fact, I always remember when it was because I was pregnant with my third child, which may seem insignificant, but I had two in high school when I found out that I was having this third child. So, surprise, surprise, and she is the icing on the cake. Casey will tell you, she's, she's absolutely our delight. She's married now and has two children of her own. But when I was pregnant with her, one day I sat down just to and flipped on the TV, just you know running through channels, and this advertisement came on for um, a musical comedy. It was a revival of a musical comedy coming to the Fox Theater called Sophisticated Ladies. I think it originally came out in the 30s or the 40s or whatever. And for some reason, my heart was just arrested by that word sophisticated. Because I thought, you know, that really is what the world tells us that, that we want to be, is sophisticated. And so I got my old 1961 Collegiate Dictionary, which is totally, I'm sure, politically incorrect at this point. But I got the dictionary, and I looked it up, and it means deprived of original simplicity and made artificial. Deprived of original simplicity and made artificial. And I think as long as you're, I think your real contentment comes when you become authentic. You know, deprived of original simplicity and made artificial. And there's a place where Paul says, it's in 2 Corinthians 11, and he says, um, he, talk, he said, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I have espoused you to one husband. He said, but I fear lest as the serpent beguiled Eve, so your mind should be drawn away from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's the King James. The NIV, I think it says sincere devotion. But the way that you simplify your life is when you're living to please one. 
And as I mentioned focus a minute ago, I love in Song of Solomon in chapter 4, verse 1, he, it's the, the shepherd talking to the young Shulamite maiden, and he says to her, he says, you have dove's eyes. And do you know the thing about doves, they don't have peripheral vision. They can only see one thing at a time. And so that was the compliment that he was making to her is you just have eyes for me. And just in regard to this whole definition, you know, of sophistication, deprived of original simplicity and made artificial, I really do believe that that's one thing that the world picks up on quicker than anything else is a lack of authenticity. And I think oftentimes that's at the root of our discontent because we're not being real. We're not being ourselves. And I've got um, in my other Bible, I'm a quote, I love quotes. And I mean, I cut them out and I tape them into the front of my Bible. And I just really love quotes. But one of my favorites is from Anwar Lindbergh. And it says, the most exhausting thing in life is being insincere. The most exhausting thing in life is being insincere. That will rob your contentment probably as quickly as anything else. And this is an illustration that I always like to use. And it was told to me as a true story, whether it is or not. It, it drives the point home. But the Greeks made incredibly beautiful pottery. And they, they were artisans in their own way, but they just did not have the firing process down very well. And so, every, I mean, the Greeks did. And so they, they were great artisans, but the Romans tried to copy the Greeks. And so they had... You know, they were, as I say, they, they made beautiful pottery, but they did not have the, the um, firing process down. And so when it came out, all of their pottery had cracks in it. So they would just fill the cracks in with wax. Once it was painted, it looked like a reasonable facsimile to this great artisanship that the, that the Greeks made. Well, in order to protect their great artisanship, the Greeks started putting two Greek words on the bottom of their pottery. Sine, S-I-N-E, and seer, C-E-R-E. Sign means without, and seer means wax. If you've ever written a business letter or received a business letter, it's always signed how? Sincerely. And what that means is this is completely without wax. What is in this letter is bona fide and true. And see, that's what brings contentment to us is when we become sincere when we're without wax you know when we're not trying to necessarily cover anything up I don't mean that you have to share all your blemishes and all your distresses and all your sins with other people but I think one of the main things that we absolutely have to do is be transparent to the to the recognition that we're all struggling you know that we all really that there's elements in our life where you know where we are discontent and just in regard to go back just for a minute to, to the woundedness, you know, there's a scripture, well, usually what people say, well, you just need to get past that. And you do need to, you know, they'll say, well, just, in fact, I saw a quote one time and it said, don't look back, we're not going that way. And I thought, you know, that's really a great quote. But the point being is if you've had woundedness, you know, whether it's in your childhood, whether it's been through a marriage, various relationships, whatever it is, the scripture that people want to always say, you know, is putting those things that are behind behind. You know, we press on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
But what that really means, where it says putting those things behind, behind, it means bring to resolution. It means resolve those things. And in regard to my own personal life, just because of a lot of um, situations in my my growing up years, a lot of um, family illness, a, a financial catastrophe, just various things, you know, that happened, there were things. And this was kind of, I would never have said that I thought this, but you can't be contented with this kind of mindset. It was like God was up on the throne, and he had a, you know, he had a magic wand in one hand, and he had a baseball bat in the other, and kind of he was capricious, you know, just kind of whatever day he was having, you know, he was going to bless me or he was going to get me, you know. And so that I wouldn't have illustrated it at that time as a child, but that's sort of the way that I had because in my life it seemed like every every time something everything was going good something happened. I mean, the bad, you know, something happened. And so I basically lived in a state of anxiety, just low-level anxiety. If everything was going good, all that said to me was, what's about to happen? And you have to understand that for everything that is perfect, God has a perversion. The perversion of anxiety is anticipation. Now, what I mean by that anxiety is, I don't know what's going to happen anticipation is, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, just you live in an expectancy, you know, that God's going to take care of you, that things are that things are going to work out. But what I found over time in, as I say, just going through all those things, particularly in my childhood, you know, having um, my grandmother attempted suicide, my father attempted suicide. So that was sort of always, you know, kind of in the back of my mind, you know, because I do believe that that's a spirit. You know, and so there was just that that thing, you know, that was just sort of out there, and it kept me from being what contented. You could never really settle down into contentment. And as I began to get in the Word, Hosea four six just basically arrested me, and it says, "My people perish for a lack of knowledge." And for some reason, that became foundational to me that there were certain things that obviously I didn't understand. And if I would begin to get in the Word and begin to understand those things, and as I looked back over the course of of what happened in our life, we were church-going people, but we were not disciples. You know, we're all very familiar with that scripture that says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, that's predicated on something. It says, if you continue in my Word... Then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So the way that you come to the truth that is really going to be freeing to you, whether it's from, and like I say, I don't know why, there's just an emphasis in my heart really since yesterday, just on the fact that we need to recognize our woundedness. Because there was a period of time that I could not really share about my past and I you know and if we had more time tonight I would go into more more detail about it but um that I could not really talk about that even though God had worked in my life but I couldn't talk about it without crying and you know why because the wound was still there you know and the 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 serious um consequence the most serious consequence to me of an open wound is the scripture talks about do not let a root of bitterness spring up because by it many will be defiled. You know, some oftentimes if we have an open wound and we don't allow, you know, the Lord to deal with that and the Lord to give us 
what we need, basically, as I said, to pour in the oil and the wine and to bring genuine healing. And I can tell you now, I'm free. I mean, I am healed from all that. And really, I have come to that place of, you know, that I am, I'm able to put those things that are behind, behind. But what I want to say about that is I haven't left them. I've brought them into my life at this time. You know why? Because they're beneficial for other people. And so much of, you know, really what I'm sharing tonight, a lot of this came out of a year-long depression that I went through, which I'll share at another time. But so much of that, um, the benefit of all that, one of the things that I, I would share with you, because I think this is the way a lot of us feel because of the, word, the world that we live in, we're so pulled in so many directions. And as I was moving into that, that year-long depression, it sort of started in the spring, and by August I was moving into it, went through a whole year. By the next August I was beginning, you know, to come out of it. But the one thing that I described, the way that I felt, I felt fragmented. I mean, I just want you to think about that word. I'm trying to kind of watch my time here. Think about that word fragmented. Because I was pulled in so many directions. I mean, and all of us are. I mean, we have certain demands that are made on our lives. And they're... um, they're just practical things. I mean, you know, we have work, we have families, we, you know, have various commitments that we have. But there is a point at which you go beyond what God designed for you. And one of the things that I would recommend that I believe will bring you into a place of contentment is to step back and assess how much you're doing of what God has called you to do and how much of what you're doing man has called you to do. And that goes back to that Song of Solomon where it said, where she said, you know, my brothers made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And so, like I say, I just, one of the things that I want to encourage you to do out of this tonight is just step back and assess what really has God called you to do. And I want to tell you something, there's no elevation in that this is more spiritual than that. I mean, I can just tell you that when I was changing diapers and being obedient to take care of my children, it was as much of a blessing and a call on my life as what I'm doing tonight. And that's the truth. And see, we have a tendency to think one thing is possibly you know, more spiritually superior to another. And I want to encourage you to, in regard to your relationships, because I do think that relationships are absolutely critical to part of your contentment. Psalm 119 says, I am a companion of all those that fear thee and of those that keep thy precepts. Those are the people that you need to pull around you. I am a companion of all those that fear thee and of those that keep thy precepts. Our school verse for the year, <coughs> excuse me, school verse for the year is Proverbs 4.23. And it says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We need to wake up to what we're allowing to come in because so much of what we allow to come in causes us to be discontent. I mean, you know, if you're watching about three hours of news every night, (laughs) I doubt that you're going to bed very contented. But this is another thing, too. As I say, just in growing up, even television was black and white, you know, and the world was pretty black and white. You knew what was right. You knew what was wrong. 
And one of the things that I never felt as a child, I don't ever remember being afraid or being fearful of going out of the house. Or, I mean, for goodness sakes, I mean, we walked up uptown to the square, you know, those kind of things. And we really do not live in that kind of environment anymore. But I want to remind you, the one place that you do have jurisdiction is in your home. It's in your home. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, those first three verses, when he asked, he wanted a report from Jerusalem. You know, he said, you know, how is it in Jerusalem? And this report comes back, and it says the walls are down, and the gates are burned. And I think that's very true, not only in a lot of lives, but more sadly, in the church. The walls are down, and the gates are burned. And what happens, I mean, you know that by design, what walls are supposed to do and what gates are supposed to do is to let certain things in, and what else? Keep certain things out. You know, and there's a scripture, it's in, um, in Corinthians, it says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals. Evil company corrupts good morals. And that sort of ties in with the fact of how you choose your companions, who you really surround yourself with. And I thought about this. You know, somebody will say, well, I don't, you know, I don't keep evil company. You let more in through your television. You let people in through that television that you would never open your front door to. Am I coming through loud and clear? The walls are down. And the gates are burned. And so I really think that it's time that, that part of the, the way that I have come to have contentment is, well, first of all, one of the main things is to surround myself with the right people, people that are going to encourage me, people that, um, that I know accept me for who I am, that I can be real. Casey and I have been in a little um, prayer group with people that we've known for a long time. And I said, you know, it's really interesting because I have a lot of close friends that I have a, just a really long history with. I mean, I used to think my mother would talk about something 30 years ago or 40 years ago or whatever. And I thought, you know, I'm there now. You know, I mean, I can, and I have a lot of friends that I have had, you know, over a long period of time. And part of the beauty of that, if you have a long time friendship, is that you have a history with that person. You know, that you don't have to really explain yourself, you know, because they sort of know, you know, Casey and I have, you know, you've walked through things and you've had opportunity to to observe situations, you know, that, that people have been in. But I really think that part of the contentment comes as we really begin to rebuild those walls and decide what we're going to let in and what we're going to keep out. And like I say, probably one of the first things to me is the people that you're, you surround yourself with. It's so absolutely critical. And then when I say, and again, I don't know why this thing of woundedness, be willing to look at those things that are painful. Don't, I don't mean to gaze at them. I mean glance at them in reality and then focus, you know, gaze at Jesus for him to, to minister to you in those areas. Because the, the scripture says, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, there is no temptation, test, or trial that is going to overtake you that is not common to man. The same things that hurt you are the same things that hurt me. And I remember one time, you know, so many times we're saying, well, Lord, you know, I just wish they would be more like this, or I wish they would be more like that. And you know what he said to me? He said, if you can't find it, be it. Really, so many times what you're wanting other people to do or to be, he's saying, you know, if you can't find it, 
be it. And so many times I put myself on the other side of certain words. What if I were on the other side of what was being said? You know, and I'm I'm so conscious of that at school with, with these children. And I see so many, you know, it's just kind of like the Lord gives you radar for those that just really need for for to be noticed. You know, I mean to to let them know that you are so valuable. You know, and that is a privilege to be able to be able to do that, you know, for other people. So whatever you know, I've said tonight, I guess just the, the main thing is just to look at those things that hinder you from being contented. And also just be aware that you're living in a world that's going in one direction and you're going in another. And, you know, I said it's interesting because it's like we get caught up in the rat race and, number one, we're not rats and so we don't need to be moving at the pace that they move at. But let me give you permission to do one thing in particular, rest. I think rest is critical to contentment. And as I said, we live in a world that goes 24-7. And when I was growing up, the, the, actually the, um, the stores on the Marietta Square closed at noon on Wednesday, mainly because everybody went to Wednesday night prayer meeting. <laughs> but they closed, and there was something on Sundays called Blue Laws. Nothing could be open on Sunday except possibly a pharmacy. And now, literally, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, look at, look at the difference just really over, you know, a course of, you know, 50 to 60 years, what's happened. And see, that's the subtlety of Satan. And that's why there's so much discontent, because people don't know just how to settle down. And it's interesting. This is one of the things that I learned over time. My mother used to tell me, now, if you'll just get your clothes out tonight, you won't be running around in the morning like a chicken with its head cut off trying to find your clothes. And that was true. You know, that if I'd get everything, y'all know that's true. If you get everything ready the night before, it makes your morning, you know, so much smoother. But do you know when your day starts? Do you know when the Jewish day starts? It's not sun up, sundown. Early to bed, early to, you know, early, what is it? Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And so there's just something about that old adage, but also in, if you go back and you read in Genesis, it says the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. And so if you can just recognize that your day really starts as you begin to settle yourself down, you know, get to bed, you know, at a reasonable hour and give you the liberty to rest. Jesus sent out the 70 and he gave them instructions of what to do. And when they returned back to him, and this is in, I think it's in Luke chapter 10, that where he sent them out. And then in Mark, in, in chapter 6, verse 31, it says, they came back to him and told him all things that they had done and taught. And they had been so busy that there was not even time to eat. And he did not say, all right, boys, let's hit the road. We've still got a lot we got to do. You know what he said? He said, come aside into a solitary place and rest a while. That was as much a command. He had given them a command of certain things to go out and do. And then he called them back to himself. You know, and he said to them, find a solitary place. Now, let me tell you, I want to make a distinction here. You know, I told you, every time there's something good, Satan has a perversion for it. We all need solitude. 
Solitude is where we just get alone, let the Lord minister to us, find his peace, find his rest. The perversion of solitude is isolation. And just think about that, you know. And what you need to do is if you're in a a bad way, you need to insulate, not isolate. But you need to insulate with the right people. It's not just about having people around you necessarily. But we all need some times of solitude. So just give yourself that liberty for him just to say to you, why don't you just take a nap? I unabashedly take an afternoon nap every time when I get home from school. I don't have, I mean, the sofa is calling me when I get in my car at school. You know, and I give myself the liberty. And this is what you need to understand about rest. If you will get the rest that you need, all the people that you love and the things that you really need to do will be done so much better. I mean, I learned that the hard way. And as I say, I won't go into the details about that tonight, but that's basically that lack of rest and lack of listening to what God wanted me to be doing is what opened the door to really and truly what was a, a suicidal depression. I was not contented. But I can tell you that tonight I'm contented. And the reason is it's because he's been faithful and he's been good. And I hope, as I say, just that something that was on the banqueting table tonight, something spoke to you, something ministered to you, and hopefully even in the coming weeks, it'll, it'll pull you in and give you some kind of increase in your contentment. So can I pray? And then I think y'all will have your table discussions. Okay. Father, I thank you and I praise you that just sovereignly, that none of us are just here by, by happenstance, but just by your spirit, you drew us to be here. You've seated everyone at specific tables, Lord. You've brought particular relationships together. And Father, we just thank you for that. We just, right now, we just take a deep breath and just thank you that we can be in a safe place, that we're in a church where the word goes forth clearly, where the walls are built up, where the gates are safe. I just pray for every individual here, Lord. You know wounds, you know various things in our lives, Lord, most of those things that we don't even know ourselves. So I just ask you to just be our good shepherd. I pray for your watch care over each one of us. Your watch care. I just love that thought that you watch over us, that you never sleep. That when we lie down at night, you're there. When we wake up in the morning, you're there. So I pray for an increased awareness of your presence. I pray for a settling in of contentment, knowing that you are enough. And that this would just be a a fresh opening of our eyes of what you desire for us. That you don't demand of us more than, than what is certainly reasonable but that we would hear you, that we would make assessments, that we would live as a set-apart people, fulfilling the call that you have on each individual life, Lord. And we bless you, we praise you, Lord. We give you the honor and the glory that is yours alone. And Father, we thank you tonight that we know the truth, that in the world that is absolutely chaotic, that we know the truth that you're our north star, that you're our fixed point. And we take joy in that. 
And we pray all this, Father, in the matchless name of your beloved Son and our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.